DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Stephan. More than two and a half years ago in 2021, on February 1st, the military in Myanmar ousted a democratically elected government. Attacks on civilians still continue. We hear from people in Chin State in western Myanmar. Before we live in Tantlangtong, in the military ban our house. Always we fear the military. Ethnic clashes have rocked India's northeastern state of Manipur. The violence has not stopped. The situation here in Manipur is far from normal. The boundary between the Infal Valley and the hills are still not calm because we could see firing every now and then. And the dangers of landmines are still lingering in Angola. Coming up now. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Just last week, all members of the UN Security Council, except for China and Russia, said they condemned the unrelenting violence and killing of civilians in Myanmar. The democratically elected government of the Southeast Asian country was ousted in a military coup in 2021. The UN again urged the military regime to stop its attacks, release ousted leader Aung San Suu Kyi and other detainees, and respect human rights. According to the UN, the military's attacks have left over 18 million people in dire need of humanitarian assistance. Over 15 million don't have regular access to adequate food. Chin State in western Myanmar, bordering India and Bangladesh, has historically been one of the poorest and least developed regions in the country, even well before the military coup and collapse of government services. Anti-junta forces have now taken control over most of this remote region. Within that space, volunteers are providing what they can to residents, from shelter to education to health care. Justin Higginbottom traveled with members of the anti-junta Chinland Defense Forces to see how people there are faring during these difficult times. I'm walking with members of the Chinland Defense Forces, or CDF, in Tantlong, some 40 kilometers or 25 miles from Hakka, the capital of Chin State. We're standing in a town that used to be home for about 10,000 people. Little remains of it now. Many of the CDF fighters started as protesters after the 2021 coup. They organized into these local militias a few months later after the military began killing civilians. That organizing was with help from the Chin National Army. They've been fighting for greater autonomy since the 80s. Like most towns and villages in this mountainous region, it's on top of a thin plateau. Those homes left standing have kept their colorful coats of paint applied before the Civil War started. Shades of mint green, yellow, and pale red. The only residents now, at least in this part of town, are CDF soldiers. The fighters I'm walking with, they're all in their 20s, are from here. The houses we pass were the homes of neighbors. Do you have any memories from the street? Of course I'm not. <laughs> what do you remember? Do you remember any of these homes? Yeah, a display. Over there, we can buy whiskey, <laughs> and we can we can drink with a lot of friends. And thing now with uh, girlfriends. <laughs> According to the CDF, the Myanmar military raised around 1,000 buildings here, about half the town. That includes their largest church. 
It's the kind of destruction that crunches under your feet. Most residents of Chin State are Baptist Christians, and churches are often targeted by Myanmar's Air Force. At least two were bombed just in August. The CDF controls around two-thirds of Tantlong now. How far is the military soldiers from this point? Uh, about uh, 1,500 meters. Over there, you see the pagoda? Yeah. There is their place. Sometimes we attack and sometimes they attack. They attack us. Although the military is hunkered down in part of this town, the surrounding peaks and valleys and most villages in between are controlled by anti-junta forces. Like this CDF drone team, flying a bombing run from a mountaintop overlooking Tomong. Yeah, we kill a lot and we can destroy their trucks a lot. They're very afraid of our drone team. In the space between the front lines, volunteers have largely taken over public services that would normally be provided by the state, such as education and health care. This is one of the poorest and least developed regions in Myanmar. Although the junta has interest in controlling it, there's a half a billion U.S. dollar infrastructure project funded by India that plans to connect Kolkata to a port in Myanmar's Rakhine state. That project will cut through this region. With limited aid getting to this remote area, poor villages are largely tasked with caring for refugees. Villages like Saline, home to an IDP camp housing around 500. Bawi Fluk Sin lives here. He's 73 and says junta troops burned down his home in Tantlong two years ago. He says they need more food and medicine. Prices have skyrocketed in Myanmar since the coup. That includes basic necessities like rice. These villages are still recovering from the COVID pandemic, which emptied much of their food storage. Salai Vantong is the operations director for the Chin Human Rights Organization. They deal with food insecurity in the region. The longer term concern is very worrying. At local level, they would be sharing whatever they have as much as possible. For the longer term, yes, obviously, this is a very concerning and we don't think that they will be able to last much longer. Some aid does get through from NGOs, the United Nations and religious organizations. But we flux in at that IDP camp says the help they're getting isn't enough. But his main message for those in the world listening isn't about that. He lost one of his sons in the fighting. And what he says they really need are anti-aircraft weapons. School is in session at that village. Classrooms are packed with locals and the recently displaced. Most teachers here are part of the civil disobedience movement, called CDMers. After the coup, they quit working for government-run schools. Now they work as volunteers in areas outside the military's control. A teacher that goes by Mr. Thomas is one of those CDMers in this township. He says the children are happy to be in school again. For many, it's their first time in a classroom in more than two years. But the sounds of jets overhead can put them into a panic. Before we start learning, they are staying simply. Because now we can attend, uh, they can attend school, very happy. But sometimes the, the airplanes uh, often fly over our school. Sometimes they are uh, fear. 
Harbor. One of his students just a few days ago fainted after hearing a low-flying jet. In the back of the school, like at most in this township, are shallow trenches for students to hide in case the village is bombed. He shows me the space. This hole also not enough for students. <laughs> 300 over. It's barely enough to fit the over 300 students that attend this school. Mr. Thomas is also a refugee. Before we live in Tantlangtong, in the military ban our house. Otherwise, we fear the military because we moved to my village. We stole jacket, without bags, without suitcase. My things is uh, in Tantangtong. When he returned for his things, Hunta soldiers shot him in the chest. He received medical care across the border in Aizal, in the northeastern Indian state of Mizoram. There's few options for health care here. Supplies are limited, and government-run hospitals can be unsafe to visit. Authorities are on the hunt for those sympathetic to the resistance. But, like in other humanitarian areas, organizations and individuals are trying to fill that vacuum. I'm at a clinic in the village of Surkwa in Hakka Township, out of the military's reach. A volunteer that goes by Dr. Emily shows me around. This is an autoclave room, and this is a normal liver room. Oh, <laughs> is it hard delivering babies here? Yeah. <laughs> It's a traditional wooden house. You wouldn't guess it was a clinic without it being packed with those that are sick. Dr. Emily says it's always this packed. She says they can treat minor illness and injury, even deliver babies if there aren't complications. But they lack equipment and medicine for major surgeries. There's a hospital in Hakka, the capital of Chin State, just a couple hours away. But that city is controlled by the junta. If uh, there is a difficulty in handling the situation, we refer the patients to the Hakka. We explain a lot. We counsel, counsel them a lot before we send them to Hakka. We said like that if you don't go hard to Hakka, and there would be a threat to his life or your baby life and like that. Even if the patient isn't a member of the CDF, they could have friends or family that are. Authorities can arrest them for any association, although patients don't feel totally safe at this clinic either. The motorcycles many came here on are parked away from the building. Because if uh, a lot of motorcycles park here, and maybe from the sky, they can see and maybe this would be CDF, and they think like that, and there would be a strike. So we're afraid of that. Dr. Emily is 28 and was working at a hospital in Yangon when the military took power. She's also a member of the civil disobedience movement. She says it was easy for her to decide to quit working for the government, but it was difficult leaving her patients in Yangon. But uh, as a doctor, uh, we feel so sorry about uh, for our patient. So um, it's a very, it, it was a very hard time for us. Uh, I remember that uh, my last duty, I uh, walk around the ward and uh, I, uh, when I um, see the patient faces, I feel very sorry. There are seven people who work here. Most are also CDMers. The clinic relies on foreign donations. Chin people have a strong diaspora network, especially in the United States. They call Indianapolis, the capital of the Midwestern state Indiana, where many settled, Chindianapolis. Dr. Amos is another CDMer who returned home from Yangon to help. 
He moved into this hospital in Takir village to treat patients. It's also out of the junta's control. I spoke to him on a rainy evening just as he finished his shift. To say they're understaffed would be an understatement. In medical field, there are four major subjects, such as uh, surgery, medicine, OG, and child. <laughs> yeah, I treat all of them. <laughs> Dr. Amos is the only doctor here. The hospital first relied on individual donations, but now they're getting some resources from the Chin Health Organization. That's a nonprofit formed by Chin medical professionals. The group claims to support 17 hospitals and 220 healthcare workers in Chin State. Dr. Amos is grateful, but there's still much that is needed. The most important thing now currently we need is uh, anesthetic machine. We have no anesthetists. I'm not only surgeon, but also uh, anesthetist uh, currently. But we don't have anesthetic machine. Anesthetic machine is most, uh, more important uh, for some serious illness or some major surgeries. He says he's asked a lot about what his hospital needs. But he thinks the best thing for the health of Chin people is to win the civil war. Uh, I don't want them to prioritize to... And not to the hospital, but to the front line, because we need lots of bullets, lots of guns. At a CDF base on a hilltop covered in dense jungle, young fighters relax and sing songs during a lull in fighting. Although the CDF is a network of local fighters, the groups also end up running public services. One member shows me a small clinic under construction. What, what is this space? What are you building? Yeah, we built for uh, our uh, CDF army, and we will run uh, the lab, a small lab. Yeah, they were trained by NUG. They got certificate, not only just for our CDF, they will continue to provide for citizen, civilian. She says the Civilian National Unity Government is providing some training for blood tests. The NUG was formed after the military takeover and operates as a shadow government in much of Myanmar, although this CDF group hasn't had enough support to finish this building. Uh, we have low uh, budget, that's why we can finish on time. Last year, they found cases of malaria, that parasite is spreading rapidly in the region. This year, two CDF members had tuberculosis. Across from the partially built clinic is a shack surrounded by barbed wire. Inside are prisoners, junta soldiers, and government workers, those that didn't join the civil disobedience movement. They're used as bargaining chips for health care in the area. The junta has arrested Chin doctors suspected of helping the CDF. Sometimes we have a deal. That's why uh, they ask us if you release this person or you release uh, your doctor. Yeah, they, they have a deal. They're hoping to make a trade soon. They need all the doctors they can get. Justin Higginbottom for DW in Tantlong, Myanmar. And we 
stay in the region and move to the northeastern Indian state of Manipur that is located east of Bangladesh, bordering Myanmar. More than three months since ethnic violence broke out there, clashes persist among the two largest groups, the predominantly Hindu Métis majority and the Christian Kuki minority. According to official figures, more than 60,000 people have fled to relief camps that are tearing at the seams. At least 180 people have been killed. Numerous incidents of rape have been reported. Prime Minister Narendra Modi said earlier in August that his government was working to end ethnic clashes in the region. However, human rights groups say his Hindu nationalist party has fanned the flames of the conflict. Moli Krishnan traveled to Manipur and sent us this report. At a crowded relief camp of the Kuki-dominated town of Churanchanpur, a two-hour car drive from the state capital Imphal, people are busy preparing for lunch. They're making rice and lentils, a staple food for those living in the camp. Food is hard to come by because of the blockades imposed. The town is described as ground zero of the ongoing conflict. Chongolal, a Kuki youth, says he's safe. I have been staying here for around three months. Actually, we are in the front line. That's why we came here, to protect ourselves. It's a bit dangerous to stay there. Violent clashes began in May, following a protest march organized by members of the minority Christian Kuki population, who say a court ruling over the status of the Métis will give the majority group even more influence. The violence that followed has forced more than 60,000 to flee from their homes. Sarah Simte is one of them. The Métis mobs burnt down our house and all our belongings. I could do nothing. We don't know how long we can stay here in this camp. Who knows what's to come? There are over 120 such camps in the town, and many are overcrowded with poor facilities and hygiene. Homes of hundreds of families, shops, churches and other buildings have been burned down by angry mobs since the violence began. The fault lines have rapidly deepened after the conflict flared up in May. Now, people from the majority Meiti and minority Kuki communities are living in completely separate zones, no longer venturing into each other's territory. And the government has been unable to bring the situation under control. Ginza Wulzong is a spokesperson for Indigenous Tribal Leaders Forum, a tribal organization in Manipur. The violence has not stopped. The situation here in Manipur is far from normal. The boundary between the Infal Valley and the hills are still not calm because we could see firing every now and then. The unnerving silence is shattered by sporadic gunfire in the distance, believed to be between security forces and armed groups from either side. One has to be careful traveling to the cookie-dominated areas in the hills, ensuring that a driver doesn't belong to either of the warring communities. Internet has been cut all over the state for over three months, heightening the isolation. The immediate trigger for Manipur's ethnic clashes was a state court ruling in late March that asked the state to officially recognize the largely Hindu Métis as a tribe under the Indian constitution. That would help Métis access certain jobs and be eligible for education quotas reserved 
for recognized tribes such as the Kukis. In response, members of the predominantly Christian Kuki and Naga tribes launched a protest against the possible extension of their benefits to the Métis, who they believe are already the dominant community in the state. More stories of horror from Manipur, where women have been at the receiving end of the violence in this ethnic conflict. But it wasn't until a graphic video was released that the story became international news. The video depicted an incident in early May where two cookie women were stripped naked and forced to parade in front of a group of men from the dominant Métis tribe. One of them was raped. Since then, there has been a renewed focus on sexual violence against women. More cases of alleged rape and murder have been made public and put the spotlight back on the conflict. Mary Beth, a women's rights activist working in the state, says there's been widespread use of sexual violence as part of the ethnic conflict. It is very painful for being a woman. Women's body has been weaponized as a tool to show uh, supremacy over opponent group and also to avenge uh, the other opponent party, which is very sad. Sexual violence reports triggered more protests and encouraged families of other victims to come forward and detail their experiences. Kim Kohat, 45, a mother of four who belongs to the Cookie Zo community, still refuses to believe that her daughter, Olivia, 22, is dead. Olivia and her friend, who worked as caretakers at a car wash facility in Imphal, were raped and brutally murdered by marauding mobs on May 5th. Their rented quarters were surrounded by men belonging to the Mete group, who reportedly dragged them into a room before being brutally assaulted. My daughter's body is still in the morgue. I have not seen her yet. What do I do? And the police have told me nothing. I am numb. I still think of her every day. At least 11 violent sexual crimes have been reported. This has forced the hand of India's Supreme Court, which has stepped in to slam the state authorities for inaction. At the beginning of August, the court called the investigation carried out by the Manipur police in relation to the ethnic violence as lethargic. It also went to so far as to call out the state for an absolute breakdown of law and order and machinery of the state. Paunam Suresh Singh, a member of the Mete community, condemned the violence and said both tribes should have respect for each other. There's no sign of love. There will be no so what call as love if this type of cruel, brutal inhumanities are existed. So this is not the failure of the government, this is the failure of the people who has taken things into this diverse way of making peace away by killing. Pradeep Panjubam, a media commentator, says peace will not come quickly to Manipur. I think it's going to be difficult. Also, it's going to take a long time before normalcy returns. The solution will come about only when the two sides talk, when there is an opportunity, when there's a bridge built. For that bridge to be built, I think those in power will have to activate themselves. There are no easy solutions for Manipur, as tensions remain high and displaced villagers fear returning home. Many now say this is not the time for finger-pointing if they want peace to return. Murli Krishnan, DW, Imphal, in Manipur.
The effects of 27 years of civil war can still be felt in Angola. A peace agreement was reached over two decades ago. And since then, the southern African country has made great strides in development. But it hasn't been easy. There are still large areas that are littered with landmines and are impossible to enter. For years, international organizations have worked with local governments to remove mines. It's an important but difficult task. Jennifer Collins has more in this report by Jana Gent. In western Angola, about 400 kilometers south of the capital city Luanda, people in this local village are careful about which paths they take because one false step could prove deadly. A woman named Aurora Antonio lives in the village and describes the situation like this. I was worried because we always used to collect firewood here in the hills, but when we found out it was full of mines, we started going somewhere else. Danger has become part of everyday life, and not just in the village of Canangorera. It's also that way in other parts of Benguela province. Manuel Gomez, who also lives in the province of Benguela, told reporters that landmines have always been part of his life. Yes, I have lost some friends and families that were hit by landmines. Some have died, but fortunately, some have survived as well, although with some physical limitation due to the limbs that were affected by the explosions. Their life changed significantly because now they are considered to be people with disability and they find it hard to get through life easily as before. They become dependable to others. Some have lost their jobs and others have gone through psychological issues. Today, daily life in Angola is still affected by landmines, perhaps more than any other country in the world. No one is in a position to say exactly how many there are. Nelson Ferrissimo leads the NGO MAG, which has worked since 1994 to remove mines from cities and fields. Based on uh, MAG's experience and all the work that has been done so far, we consider Angola to still have a considerable problem based on what we have removed and destroyed. It's likely potential to remain a a considerable problem uh, still. Angola has suffered 27 long years of civil war and a peace agreement was only reached in 2002. But Jose Antonio says there's still a long way to go. Antonio is regional director of the non-profit organisation The Halo Trust, which also works to remove mines. I can say that we are still very concerned about the landmine situation in the Republic of Angola. We have provinces with a high level of contamination of mines, not only landmines, but also other bombs left by the war. Because when we talk about mines in Angola, we have to understand that there are still abandoned munitions and other bombs in the combat areas. The Angolan government sees the clearing of mines as a central problem to be solved. In 2019, a $60 million programme was set up with the goal of making the country mine-free. The money is certainly being spent, says Isabel Masella. She's director of the National Anti-Mine Agency, which coordinates and distributes the project's money. She's pleased with how the programme is going so far. In terms of demining, I can assure you that Angola has made significant progress compared to four years ago when we had about 121 million square metres of mined area. 
Today, it's down to about 67 million square metres. Nevertheless, there are still occasional explosions nowadays. And there are huge areas all over Angola that still need to be cleared. The Halo Trust are working in the village of Canangorera. Albina Chilanda is part of the on-site team. My hope is first and foremost that the mines will be removed. All we want is peace in our country, a country free of mines, so that there can be industry, peace and a free people. The fact is that although the mine clearing teams are making progress, their work is far from over. All over Angola, not just in Benguela province, there are many more teams who every evening turn off their devices at the end of a long day well aware there is more work to do tomorrow. Jennifer Collins there with a report by Jana Gent. And that wraps up this week's show. For more World in Progress content, go to dw.com slash worldinprogress or wherever you get your podcasts. The studio team was Wiebke Tegtmeier and Ziad Abu Sleiman. I'm Sarah Steffen. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now.